1: has done it. They've gone from 15 and 16 to champions of college baseball.
0: Welcome to the 1,544 Miles to Omaha podcast, talking about the past, present, and future of Cal State Bulletin baseball.
1: And he drives this one high and deep to center field. Elliot Carey all the way back, and that one is good! The a three-run shot for Timmy Richards. Ripped through into left field. Suzuki with a hit. Here comes Hunter Harris with the throw to the plate. It's not in time. And Fulton is on top. Hit to center. Fellhauer coming
2: over. The Cal State Florida Titans are going to the Super Regionals again.
0: Here's your host, Dave Lamb.
2: Welcome to the 1544 Miles to Omaha podcast. This is episode 67 and part two of our conversation with head coach Kirk Sarlos, the head coach for the TCU Hornfrogs Frogs and legendary Titan baseball pitcher. In this upcoming episode, he'll talk more about his career in professional baseball and also his transition into coaching and also give you a little bit of a taste of what's to come later on in the season coming up in 2023 when the TCU Hornfrogs Frogs will host the Cal State Fullerton Titans in a non-conference weekend series. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. And up next is part two of our conversation with head coach Kirk Sarlos. After Omaha, you start your pro career with the Astros, and you debuted in the bigs just about a year after playing in Omaha. And you mentioned earlier in the year or earlier on the podcast that uh, the pipe dream of, of, of eventually playing in, in the major leagues how did you advance so quickly to the point where you were drafted in June and then probably about a year later you're 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 pitching for the Astros
1: Yeah, I think it was just about momentum coming off of that summer of Team USA, rolling right into my senior year and having having a great senior year and then rolling right into my first summer of professional baseball. I threw so many innings. I think I threw 165 innings my senior year of college, so they wanted me to come and go right to A-ball and be a closer. So I went there and threw another 30 or so innings and had success there. So it was almost like, okay, I did it against – with team USA, I did it with Cal state Fullerton and now I've done it with in pro ball. And I just didn't know any better. I think I I felt so confident that I could kind of do whatever I wanted to do and have success. So, you know, you roll that into the first spring training and my whole goal was to just make the double a roster. That was my one goal. I want to make double a roster. And so made the double a roster and my first start, I gave up, I, we were in El Paso and I, I think I went. we went one, two, three in the first inning, and then I gave up nine earned runs in the second inning. And in college baseball, you'd be on the bench way before giving up nine. But I gave up nine in the second inning, and then I pitched a scoreless third and a scoreless fourth. And at that time, Mike Maddox was our pitching coach. After, I think, the two days later, we're in the bullpen, and he's like, we're talking, and he's like, Kirk, why don't you ever pitch in? And I mean, well, I came from a place where, you know, the bats are are deadly weapons and there's no need to pitch in. Umpires would give you off-the-plate strikes and we just keep expanding. And he's like, well, these guys have wood bats in their hands. You have to pitch in. If you don't pitch in, there's, you're never going to get away with being able to throw stuff on the outer half. So all we did the next bullpen was just work on throwing fastballs inside. From that moment... The game plan was the first time through the order, we're going to throw nothing but fastballs. Anytime I throw a fastball, it would have to be inside versus a righty or a lefty the first time through the order just to get them set up that I'm going to pitch inside. And so the next, I think, 80 innings gave up a total of two runs. And if you do that, if you give up only two runs in 80 innings in double A, you're going to get an opportunity to pitch for the big league. So that was kind of an unbelievable experience in terms of being called up straight from double a and having an opportunity to, to pitch in the big leagues. So pretty neat.
2: I've had the fortunate opportunity to talk to a number of Titan alumni that have been called up and played in the majors, Justin Garza, Dustin Garneau. And they, they gave us their story of how they, how they were told that they were going to get the call up. What was, what's your story?
1: Well, the interesting part about that is my wife, Kristen, and I, um, at the time we were engaged and we had planned that we were going to get married during the AA All-Star break. And so the AA All-Star break, I believe, was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the middle of June. And so I was about to leave on Friday to go to Seattle, where my wife's from, and and the the wedding was going to be on Sunday. And anyway, the, the... the all-star game was going to be at round rock where that's the home ballpark of the team I was playing for. And so I was elected as the starting pitcher for the game and had to decline because I was going to go get married. And so I'm about to leave on a Friday to fly back to Seattle. And I get a phone call from our general manager, Jerry Hunsicker. And Jerry, he asked me, you know, how things are going. And, and I was just thinking, okay, he's he give me a call and, just maybe being a nice guy and saying, hey, have fun at your wedding, blah, blah, blah. Well, he ended up saying, hey, you know, we're going to, um, we need you to be in, in Milwaukee on, on Monday. Are you, are you going to be able to do that? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, on Tuesday, you're going to make your big league debut. So I went from getting on a plane to go to Seattle to get married and thinking about nothing but the wedding to, holy smokes, I'm getting married on Sunday, leaving for Milwaukee on Monday, and pitching in a big league game on Tuesday. So, kind of that 72-hour period was one I'll never forget, for sure.
2: So, I guess the wedding reception was a pretty good fun time, knowing that that was in the back of your mind?
1: Yeah, and most, I would say a large portion of that of the wedding party ended up flying out to, to Milwaukee and being part of the big league debut so that was i always kind of joke around people say oh where you know you guys got married where'd you go on your honeymoon i said oh, we went to a hotel in milwaukee and people kind of look at me weird i'm like no i'm just kidding we went we did go to milwaukee for our honeymoon but we had a real honeymoon once the season was over so but yeah but the crazy thing is, is you show up and that was the first time i had really i didn't know anybody on that big league team because i was in minor league camp my first spring training and so i get called up and i go straight from double a and I get to the field on Tuesday, the day I'm going to start, and I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I got to go out for BP because, you know, back then National League pitchers hit. You know, I barely – I'm looking around. I'm going, holy cow, there's Jeff Bagwell and Vigio, and I've never met any of these guys, you know. So it was – that was a lot of fun. And then – so that was on a Tuesday. And on Wednesday – I'm so used to minor league baseball. I didn't think anything of this. So on Wednesday we have getaway day. So the the game is at one o'clock. So I, at about 10 in the morning, I'm walking the streets of Milwaukee with my wife and our, our traveling secretary calls me and is like, uh, where are you at? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, did you, you know, today's game is at one o'clock, right? And I didn't even think of it. I just got done throwing in a big league game the day before. And, I'm just thinking the next game is at seven o'clock as well the next day, and so he's like, "Yeah, the whole team's on the field, and you're not here. That's you might want to get here." And I'm like, "Holy cow!" I'm running around, with my, my head head cut off. I hurry up, I you know get dressed, I get my luggage, I bring it to the field, I run into the locker room, and Bagwell's in there, and he's like, "What's up, Rook?" I'm like, uh, nothing, and he knew what was going on. <laughs> like, let me give you a tip here. Go get your workout clothes on. Go in the, go back in the weight room. All right, get a lift in, and once guys come in from BP, walk out like you had been here all day and you're sweaty from working out. So I did that. I think he saved me a couple hundred bucks from being fined for, for missing BP my second ever day as a big leaguer.
2: That is a fantastic story and the fact that you always hear about the rookie hazing and he could have he could have gone one of two ways. He could have completely and totally ratted you out and instead he went the other way and 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 threw you a life preserver.
1: Yeah, but then later on on, on uh, I think our flight home I think it was maybe it was our next trip. Anyway, that was back before direct deposit. Actually, like direct deposit had just happened. And but anyway, I hadn't had it set up. So I get my first big league check and I'm looking, I'm like, this is awesome. And then Bagwell calls me to the back of the plane. Is like, Hey, this is your first, your first check. I figured maybe, you know, we would, we would trade checks. Just you would get mine this, this two week pay period and I'll get yours. Welcome to the big leagues. And I was like, seriously, because at the time he was making like 18 million bucks a year. So I get his check and it's like, you know, it's like a million bucks or something. And I'm like, Holy, I can't believe it just happened. I go sit down and and then I kind of look back at it, and then I'm like, Holy, wait a minute. This is it's this is direct deposit. This means absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's just a piece of paper. And mine, I didn't have direct deposit set up yet. So my first big league check is in the back with Bagwell, and him and all of the, the older guys are just laughing and having a good time because the rookie just got his first big league check given to, the, to, to Bagwell, and I've got his non-negotiable direct deposit basically – Uh, receipt of his million dollar paycheck
2: oh that's fantastic (laughs) hopefully you didn't sign the check and then just hand it to him
1: no he had me sign it right there oh my
2: gosh (laughs) wow it's
1: all right it's all right he he paid me back he paid me back later on (laughs) okay
2: wow that's that's fantastic all right so roughly a year later you and five others combined for that historic no-hitter of the Yankees. Uh, how was that compare it to your your solo no-hitter in college?
1: Well, it was a lot different. I got four outs in that game as opposed to 27 outs in, in the college one. But now on that one, in terms of not knowing a no-hitter is happening, you know, I think a lot of people, well, there's some guys that didn't even know until after we got the last out, but, you know, when the starting pitcher goes down, in the first inning and you know, you use six pitchers to get a no hitter. The cool thing was it was in Yankee stadium, you know? And, and for me, the cool thing was, is my last out was striking out Derek Jeter. So I didn't strike many people out in in professional baseballs, but just be able to strike him out in in a game where we threw a no hitter. is pretty special. And, but yeah, after we got the last out, you know, everyone's excited on the field and Jeff Kent was our second baseman and, He looked at Biggio and was like, why in the heck? Why is everybody so excited? It's just a win in Yankee Stadium. And Biggio was like, Jeff, we just threw a no-hitter. He's like, oh, that's cool. And that was about (laughs) it. But, um, yeah, that was pretty special just because, you know, a no-hitter in professional baseball, especially that hasn't been done yet, six pitchers. So that was pretty cool to to be part of.
2: So saying that you didn't strike too many people out, but Derek Jeter is is one of those in your – Repertoire, if you will, or if you're a feather in your cap, uh, who were the who were the guys that you just absolutely hated facing? I mean, I think you know we all know that Tony Gwynn was a, was a phenomenal hitter, and, and Greg Maddox always talked about how you know he could always get people off balance and use off speeds and all that stuff, and he could always get somebody out, but he could never get Tony Gwynn out. Was there was there a, a Kirk Sarlo's nemesis out there that there was a batter that absolutely just you dreaded any time you saw him come to the plate?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are going to be left-handed. You know, it was the left-handers that could stay on baseballs and hit it out of the ballpark opposite way. <clears throat> I always used to feast off guys that would get pull-happy. And so, you know, guys like Jim Tomei, Fred McGriff, you know, guys that would really, you know, stay on baseballs and hit them out of the ballpark to different areas and didn't try to get too pull-happy with me were the guys that gave me trouble. You know, back to the Albert Pujols, obviously being a right-handed hitter was as good as it gets in terms of that was right in his heyday. Yeah. A lot of the left-handed hitters were, were usually the best ones uh, against me, you know, but then, then there's some really random ones where like, like I had really good success against David Ortiz for, I have no idea what reason. So it just certain times you get certain guys number and for whatever reason, they don't see you. But I felt like, you know, most lefties saw me pretty decently, and um, and the guys that had some juice and would do it to, to all fields were the guys that really gave me problems just because I didn't have enough velocity to get, you know, to get people to blow it by them. So I really had to rely on movement and changing speeds. speed. And, and when guys, you know, for the most part, I, I tried to throw just enough strikes that they would swing at the pitches out of the zone. And when guys like Fred McGriff, like Jim Tomei, Guys that weren't scared to hit with two strikes, guys that would wait me out until I left a ball up, were the guys that would have success. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Sorry Fred about that, <laughs> Nightmares. Who's? I think he's. I don't know. Did he get in the Hall of Fame?
2: Who's who's I that? Like
1: Fred McGriff. I felt like uh, he just Fred did. M- he M- just, M- just, they, just M- they just announced that Fred the crime M- dog M- got in. See, there you go. So now I don't feel quite as bad.
2: Yeah, your you know your nemesis was a Hall of Famer, so that's that's not too bad, right? That's right. All right, let's put a bow on the on the pro career and start talking about coaching a little bit. So you got your start coaching back at Fullerton, uh, Dave Serrano, who bring it full circle. You, you mentioned you know saw you at those area code games and 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 was integral in in your recruitment process. He brings you on as an undergraduate uh, assistant, and then you eventually stayed on and were the pitching coach with Rick Vanderhoek. Uh, when did you know you wanted to coach, and uh, how how was the transition going from pro ball to to becoming a coach?
1: You know, I always I always knew that once I was done playing, I always felt like coaching was something I wanted to do. Just because you know those four years at the Fullerton were some of my favorites. I felt like you can really make a difference in a young young kid's life in terms of not just on the field but off the field, and really want to be a part of that. Like for me, professional baseball you don't have as much of an impact. So college baseball is always something that I wanted to do. And then I had to go finish my degree. And, and so I did that in in the summer and and fall of, of 2000. And I guess it'd be 10 with coach Serrano as the undergrad assistant. And that was a big deal for me because coach allowed me to be able to really cut my teeth as being a pitching coach. He really got, gave me a lot of free reign in terms of the day-to-day operations of, of the pitching staffs and, you know, organizing, throwing schedules and and watching and ta- and t- teaching through bullpens and watching him do his job. I mean, even when I played, I was always would always stand by Coach Horton or by Coach Serrano and always kind of like the, the small details of the game. And so to get back into that was was pretty fun. And and then once and then coach left for Tennessee and, and Coach Vanderhook got the job and, you know, I owe a, a lot of things to Coach Vanderhook just because. Here, here I am, just an unproven, you know, first-time coach, and he hired me as a, my first-time full-time job as pitching coach, and that was a that was special for me, and and I think I will attend to him just to give me that opportunity, and and then to get an opportunity at TCU where I felt like being in the Big Twelve, and and you know, it was really hard to leave, obviously my alma mater and where my family's from, and uh, but just saw an opportunity with what TCU was doing and wanted to, to see what that looked like and, you know, kind of st- stuck it out quite a while. Um, and now I'm finally the head coach and it really is, uh, it really has been a special time in my life to be able to, to not only be a coach, but now be a head coach.
2: Well, I had a chance to talk with Dan Rickaball, who was the the pitching coach at Cal State Fullerton a couple of years ago. And unfortunately with the situation that went down at Long Beach state, uh, he was thrust into kind of the in- interim head coaching position, and he admitted. He says, "I I don't want to be a head coach. I don't I don't want to sit in the big chair. It's not it's not for me. I'd rather be a pitching coach and 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 stay there. And, and I'm good with that." When did you know that you wanted to eventually move up? And uh, obviously, when Jim left and, and went to Texas A&M, you were essentially the heir apparent. Uh, when did you know that you wanted to be in that big chair?
1: I think there was certain times like Stanford had, you know, Stanford was interested in me becoming the head coach at Stanford. And like I told you, you know, Stanford eliminated us twice. So I don't know if that's why I turned it down or not. But Rice also was interested. And I think at that time it was a little bit of, okay, I can't, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? Do I want to do it somewhere other than TCU? And so, I always knew I wanted to be a head coach to run my own program, but I wanted it to be at the right time on a, and on my terms. And if that ended up me- meaning that I turned down some other jobs and never became a head coach, I would have been fine with that. I've just been blessed with a great opportunity at TCU where I've been able to raise a family and you know, live one mile from the baseball field and have a great network of people here in Fort Worth. And I always felt like if it, it really – for me, it was going to be TCU or maybe one or two other schools or, or nothing. And so now that I'm doing it and in this chair, there is a lot of awesome things. And there's a lot of things that sometimes you're like, man, it was a lot easier when you're the pitching coach and recruiting coordinator, not the head coach. But I think that's with any job, with a lot of responsibility comes a lot of responsibility. And so the big chair, you do have to make decisions that are difficult, uh, but you're also going to set the temperature for the program. You get to set the temperature for the room and and have things done in a way where um, you'd like them to be done and and the main thing is is and my dad always told me is you know you just work hard and treat people right and everything will take care of itself so I've stuck by that and make sure that, that that's the um, calling card of our program and and how we want to treat our players and our kids.
2: You've been to Omaha at Rosemont Stadium both as a player. Uh, and then you also been to Omaha four times uh, since the switch to the new downtown ballpark. Uh, do you have fondness for one over the other, or is Omaha sweet no matter what stadium the games are played in?
1: Yeah, I think the first time when we went in 2014, I, it was kind of a, for me, it was a little bit of a letdown just because all my memories were, were Omaha, were uh, Rosenblatt. And all my memories were took place in that stadium. And so when we went back there, you know, you you go to the, to the parking lot outside the zoo and you can see where home plate is and the foul poles and and everything of where Rosenblatt. So it was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit sad to go back the first year, but then I started to think, you know, when we went back in years two, three and four in 2015, 16, 17, I kind of, my, my perception changed a little bit of it just because our players don't know anything about Rosenblatt. This is their Rosenblatt. The new ballpark, it's creating memories and history for, for this generation of players. And so, you know, there is something to be said about, you know, the newness of the ballpark, you know, it being downtown, you know, they've really revitalized that area in terms of restaurants and hotels. And it's really an amazing place where it's a one-stop shop now with it being downtown, as opposed to Rosenblatt being, you know, about 10 or so miles, um, a little bit uptown. And so, you know, I think now it's, it's creating its own special unique things that Rosenblatt did for itself. You know, Rosenblatt was a much more hitter's ballpark and with, you know, the bright seating and the orange and blues and uh, the seats and chairs there and the, the, the zoo in the back, you know, behind right field and a lot of history of different, you know, different things that are, well, well now the the history is going to be at the new TD Ameritrade or whatever they're calling it now. And, and I think it's, it's got its own special,
2: to it so you you did mention that four-year run of tcu going to the college world series two of those years 15 and then 17 the titans were also there two-part question one was it special to be there with your alma mater in the same elite eight the final you know the final eight out there in in, in omaha and then two from your players perspective you You could have had a, a an entire senior class who knew nothing but Omaha. How did you temper their uh, oh ho hum it's just oh we're going back to Omaha again you know uh this is my third trip this is my fourth trip you know how do you how do you do that so let's let's tackle the first one of of being there in fifteen and seventeen when when Fullerton was there,
1: yeah, that was really cool just because you know you know the history and you know what's you know, what they went through, because you, you went through it yourself, of of playing in the Big West, and then, you know, being a, you know, going through a regional, and a super regional, you've been where those guys, uh, you know, you, you you played a good one, you, you, you know what it is to be a Fullerton baseball player, and and so I had a lot, a a lot of pride in terms of when they were also there uh, during those two years, just because, you know, I still love Fullerton, I still love everything about it, and And still love to see them have success. So that was super neat. I think the one year was 2015 where we should have played each other. Um, I think it was Eshelman was absolutely carving up Vanderbilt, and it was the seventh or eighth inning. And next thing you know, I think there was a lightning delay. And so they had to resume the game the next day. And I think Kendall, the outfielder for Vanderbilt, did a home run to put him up, and they ended up losing that ball game. Which, if that lightning would not to happen, Eshelman would have thrown a complete game, and we would have been facing Fullerton in the winners' bracket. That would have been that would have been fun and and interesting to be you know in a dugout across from Fullerton. And but yeah, no, I took a lot of pride that they were there. And then you know now, like you talked about having a group of we have there's a handful of guys where like you said they were here for four years and they went to Omaha every single year. You know, and I and I think when you're in the midst of that, you don't think it's a big deal, but now when you get removed from it, you understand how hard that really actually is to not just get there one time, but to get there four years in a row is just mind boggling to, to really think about. So, you know, the other thing too, is, you know, Fullerton's coming out to play us, you know, in May and really excited about, we were supposed to go out there, but we actually ended up switching it for them to come out to to TCU, but I'm super excited. I have a really good relationship with coach Dietrich and, ever since I was at Fullerton and we worked a couple camps together when he was at UCI and our personalities and sense of humor kind of meshed really well from day one. And, and then after I left and he took over at Fullerton and then to see him, you know, East Carolina and now to be the head man at at Fullerton, you know, it's, it's really awesome. I think he's Fullerton's in awesome hands with him and great personality. You know, he's the pitcher whisper phenomenal pitching coach. He's going to have Fullerton rocking and rolling in, in no time.
2: You kind of stole a little bit of my thunder in my last question, so I'll end it with this one. You've faced the Titans as an assistant coach, but this is going to be your first time filling out a lineup card against your alma mater, trading it with Coach Dietrich at, at home plate out there in Fort Worth. Are you going to approach it any different or treat it just like you will when you play Florida State, who you guys are going to be welcome into Lupton Stadium in February?
1: Yeah, no, all the same, you know, with the, probably just a little bit, you know, hit, Jason and I will probably have a a laugh at at home plate about something but speaking of that that 2013 Fullerton team that came into TCU and swept us you want to tell that that might have been the best college team that I've ever been in the opposite dugout against you know when you look at that team when you have Garza and Eshelman and Wiest as a rotation with Carlos Lopez at at, at first and Matty Orloff at second, Pedroza at short, I think um, Chappie was playing third, uh, Wallach behind the plate, J.D. Davis, King Saul, I mean, you just had player after dude, after dude, after dude, it was like, oh, I'm sorry, Lorenzen in center, mm-hmm. it was like, it was the most ridiculous team I'd ever seen from, a, from the other dugout, anything they wanted to do, they did, and they absolutely just dominated mm-hmm. us, it was like, holy smokes. And and that's how crazy baseball is. They don't make it to Omaha. You know, it's just sometimes it takes some luck and some, uh, the right timing. And sometimes, in my opinion, like I said, the, the best team doesn't always win. It's the one that plays the best. And you got to be playing the best at the right time and have some breaks. So it's a crazy sport, but that's why we love it.
2: We'll end on this one. Give us a little bit of a preview of what we can expect to see out of your Horn Frog team, uh, not only for the year, but when, uh, when, when the Titans go out there and play you?
1: Yeah, so that's at the end of the year when, you know, just the our conference is kind of weird too. We have two off weeks through the year, so it's hard to try to find some schools that are are really good programs that have that same off week that late in the year. So I'm really fortunate that, that, uh, that Fullerton did and does. And so, you know, our club's going to – it's always going to be built on pitching and, and starting pitching. Hopefully at that point, you know, we've had guys established for, for a while – you know, we have a mix of some speed and some power. Uh, usually at that time of the year, it's going to be pretty hot. Not super hot, but it'll be hot and it'll be windy. And uh, the ballpark plays a little bit different than it does in Southern California. You know, Southern California's a little bit more neutral or straight up. Not a lot of, you know, weather factors in terms of the ballpark. But out here, kind of in Texas, you know, the wind can get going. And so there'll be some different things that... They'll have to deal with which won't be that big a deal, but it'll it'll be a, it'll be a great series. It'll be fun at that time of the year. The the students are just getting out of school, so hopefully they're still around, and it'll be a packed stadium and watch some really great baseball towards the end of the season.
2: Well, coach, really appreciate you taking the time and being so generous with your time, uh, especially right here, kind of in this dead period of. Uh, right before Christmas and all that. Uh, but very much appreciate you, you taking the time for us. Uh, best of luck to you. Best of luck to your team this year, except for that three days in uh, in May when <laughs> the Titans are out there. But uh, we hope to see you, uh, you know, looking forward to seeing you in May. And then uh, hopefully uh, the Titans and the Horned Frogs will be able to see each other in Omaha this year.
1: That's the plan. I'd love it. Are you going to be out there? you coming out this way in May? I'm
2: going to try to swing it. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Depending on, uh, depending on, I'm am also a high school umpire, so okay. that's smack dab in the middle of high school playoffs. Uh,
1: take the week off. You're fine.
2: <laughs> just, just say no. I'm all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna make the trip out there. So, uh, we're gonna we're gonna try. Would definitely love to be able to do it. Uh, but uh, if you guys go to Omaha or, if, or if Titans go to Omaha, uh, you know, definitely gonna be blocking that one out for sure.
1: Very cool. Well, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Love t- talking uh, Titan baseball anytime I can.
0: Thanks for listening to the 1544 Miles to Omaha podcast. Feel free to visit our website, calstateomaha.com. While there, you can order an official Cal State Omaha t-shirt from the merch store. Please subscribe to the 1544 Miles to Omaha podcast and share with family and friends. It's easy, it takes just a few seconds. The 1544 Miles to Omaha podcast is an On the Lamb Enterprises production and is not affiliated with Cal State Fullerton or Titan Baseball. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.